Hey everybody, we are with Midwest Chicana and this is the Fuego segment and we have an amazing co-host with us, um, Edgar Palacios. How are you? I am doing really well. How is everybody doing today? If you're listening to us, just know that we've been thinking about this moment um, for a very long time. Um, Fuego, we want to bring the fire, we want to bring the heat, we want to bring all of the Latinidad that we have in our blood and we want to put it right in, in front. And so, uh, Diana, how are you doing? Damn, that was a very good intro. I loved it. I'm going to hire Edgar to do all my intros from now on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, is why, this is why you're on this show, though. This is why you are on this podcast. I uh, I can just turn it on and off because, you know, just 10 minutes ago when we were talking, I was like, hey, how's it going? Da, 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 da. And then all of a sudden, I'm right here in your face, uh, bringing the energy, bringing the fuego. <laughs> Exactly. And Fuego was, um, we took a while to even figure out what our name was going to be because we, we did everything from what, calming to chisme to, I don't even know. Yeah, everything. And uh, Fuego came because of the fact that us as uh, CEOs and founders here in Kansas City, um, myself a Chicana and Edgar a Latino, uh, we talked about how um, our daily lives are pretty much fire every day, you know, and it is also about the calming piece, which you remind me of a lot, Edgar, because um, you have to have that calming piece, because if not, your life is always on fire. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I will agree with that. Like, and I appreciate how you how you position and frame that. Like, fire is consistent in the work that we do, um, whether we're putting out fires, whether we're on fire, whether we're um, even even in the energy. You know, bringing that fire and that spirit and that connection to passion and, and who we are as people, but also how that connects to the work that we do on a daily basis. Um, it requires all of that. It requires energy. And so when I think about fire. Um, I think about the management of energy in general and um, being calm and still is also good, right? You know, and so like we got to get to the headspace. Well, exactly. And we should probably tell our viewers since this is our first um, podcast uh, that I am. (laughs) This is hot. You said viewers. I did. They're listeners. Listeners. See, that's right live broadcast that's what we've been doing and uh you get used to the fact that you are with people (laughs) so you know what i love this idea how about we introduce ourselves yes our our new audience and our new listeners yes which i hope you will stick around uh forever (laughs) however long we're on this platform but i am the ceo and founder of latino arts foundation which includes the latino arts festival um now the midwest chicana podcast and then soon to be in connection with the porterhouse casey entrepreneur program the chicano art and cultural center of kansas city edgar is my board chair so i just want to mention that as well so edgar tell us who you are I appreciate that shout out. I love being your board chair. I love being supportive of the work that you're doing. Um, I'm also um, a founder. I founded the Latinx Education Collaborative. I mean, we are an organization that works on increasing the representation of Latinx education professionals in K-12. There are simply not enough Latinos in education today, um, but there are definitely a lot of Latino students that are showing up in classrooms every day. And so one out of four students um, identifies as Latinx. That number is projected to be one out of three within probably the next decade. And so we are nowhere um, we are no pre- we're nowhere prepared to, to, to for students to see themselves reflected in the teachers that serve them. And so trying to build that out for our community in the long term. 
You know, Edgar, we were going to talk about TVs and film, which we definitely can. That's amazing. But I'd love to stay on this topic because I think um, just being introing ourselves and then talking about the fuego and the calming and the fact that we are CEOs and founders here in Kansas City. Um, we just had a conversation in the Chingona podcast that will also be a part of this podcast um, in regards to um, not-for-profits and um, just how... Um, when you think of not-for-profit, and you tell me how you view this as well, give me your opinion. But when you think of not-for-profits, you do think, you know, um, sometimes graceful, you know, um, happy, um, giving, um, all these amazing words, right? But you tend to forget about the people, um, people we are a human, we're people that are running these things for the community. And they can get a little messy and a little hairy and a little unconventional and, not always nice, you know, in Kansas City, we're always kind of known as the nice. And it's like here in Kansas City, sometimes when you're in the not for profit world, which is what I um, have been experiencing, it's not always the most friendly or the most accepting, um, inclusive space. So um, we talked uh, a lot about that in, in one of our podcasts. And it, it just, um, it, I didn't feel alone, because I was talking to other people that are a part of that. And it, it made me feel like, okay, there's other people that feel this way, you're not crazy. And thinking that what is happening here? So what are your thoughts on that? So um, I love that there are people that think that nonprofits are happy and fun and um, full of love and and just like, I don't know, unicorns and rainbows and whatnot. Um, that has not been my experience in the last decade that I've worked in nonprofits. Um, that has not been my experience as founding a nonprofit. Um, to me, nonprofits are chaotic. Um, they are um, they're challenging on so many different levels. Um, they are they should be inclusive of the community, but oftentimes we fail at including the community um, that we're trying to serve. Um, they're messy. Um, nope, there's not like a I'm sure there is. Let me let me just say that I'm sure that there is like a playbook on how to start a nonprofit and how to be like the most successful founder and CEO of a nonprofit. Like, I'm sure somebody's figured that out and has written a book. And the reality is, like, I haven't read that book yet. And so for me, it's been a nonstop adventure in understanding who I am as a person. What is the work that I want to accomplish? How do I get people excited about the mission? Uh, how do I actually involve the voices of the people that I'm trying to serve? How do I keep myself out of those conversations as well? Because ultimately, it's for me, our work is about elevating is, is, is also about elevating the voices of Latinx uh, educators, right? And so sometimes we have to get out of the way. And so once we have the platforms and we, once we have the, the spaces where people can share their stories and, and be heard, like sometimes it's not up for us to tell, our, to, to tell their story, it's for them to tell their stories. And so um, sometimes we struggle at getting out of the way. And so, um, yeah, as a founder, um, I also have a very different experience than you. Um, and I think we talk about that a lot. Um, I also got to say, if if you're listening, you might hear occasional bursts of uh, my partner, Laura, uh, because that's just the life that we lead during COVID-19. Um, so, hey, we love it. The surprises are amazing. You know, know that she is uh, an uncredited part of this podcast because she's always in the background. Um, anyways, I, I, what I was saying, and um, what was I saying, Deanna? Will you remind me? Um, about being a founder, but I just want to say that again, Laura is phenomenal. 
And every time I hear her voice in the background doing the work, because she's every time we're on a podcast together, I hear her doing her work. I'm like, fire back there. Yes, she is. She is getting it and working it. So, yes, we don't mind Laura being a part of this. <laughs> she's, she's, she's definitely a catalyst. She is definitely somebody who inspires others. Uh, I mean, she definitely shares her fire with other folks. So I'm appreciative of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. As a, as a founder, I think one of the, I, I'm, oh, yeah, I know where I was going with this. Um, I have very different set of privileges than you do. And I think that that makes our experiences incredibly different and also somewhat unique. Um, as, a, as a man, um, as somebody who is straight, um, as somebody who is white presenting, as somebody um, who has degrees and, you know, an education and a formal education at that, like the world that I see is very different than the one I think that you experience. And so I'm learning a lot from you in terms of like, what does equity actually look like in this space? Um, because my perspective, I don't know, my perspective isn't the only perspective here. And so um, how do we, how do I utilize my privilege to help support the work that you're doing? And also like, how do I not just be um, ignorant to that? Like we all face different challenges depending on where we are on our, on our own journey. Well, I just want to let the listeners know is that you and I met almost, gosh, eight years ago, I think. And that is so important to this story. And I think um, hopefully to the listeners as well, because at that point, I didn't have a 501. I was just kind of working um, through this Scribblers company for free mentorship for the kids. And you just sat with me and chatted with me in regards to um, this is, you know, what you could be doing how can I help you? I mean, there were times when you didn't even know how to help me because, um, you know, having this idea, you know, it was hard. It, it was really hard. But one thing I have to say, though, Edgar, um, even though we've had uh, we, we do live different, we are, you know, we live different parts, you know, we have different parts. And um, but we also unite because I think you and I have a, the same kind of heart and empathy for our communities where I would do the exact same thing, I think, in the if we were opposite, you know, if it was you trying to build out something, and I knew um, I had these tools and resources, and I had done it, um, I would love, you know, to be there and help you and guide you. And I feel like that's where we kind of come on our same path is the fact that we have so much love for our communities that uh, we try to give back as much as we can. And I just think that's so important, because um, that's a rarity. I don't know if I found anyone else that has done that. And so I applaud you for taking the time to do that with me because it takes time, right? Your time is precious. And um, I'm learning that very slowly here that time is money. Time is, is, you know, priceless. And because you're not just trying to give time to your work, you're trying to give time to your families, you know, um, your outside activities, you, you know, life in itself. So um, I just want to kind of let the viewers or uh, Sorry, listeners know, you know, background. <laughs> and there was a, an epic part in our conversation that actually led to the umbrella system we are in now. And I think that happened almost two years ago. Edgar sat with me and laid out with a pencil and paper how the Latino Arts uh, Foundation could be an umbrella. And these are the parts and pieces that you could build out. I have saved that piece of paper and I still have it from the time we met. And that has really been the catalyst to where we are now. So Edgar, without that and, and that mentorship and just believing in me, which you do with a lot of your um, people you work with now and the community you work with, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be in this uh, 
platform that I am right now. And I said the same thing to Irene Garillo. Mm -hmm. We were on the podcast um, just this last week. She doesn't realize the amount of people that she has risen up. And I just love her even more for that because she just lives. She just does. She wants no recognition. She wants nothing. She just wants to be able to help those that need the help. And I'm one of those people. And uh, it was, I just felt so good to be able to say that on air to her um, because those are the people that are so important in our community that don't, don't always get the recognition. So I just kind of wanted to give some background on that piece. Absolutely. And, you know, Irene also lifted up um, our organization and she was absolutely involved. Woo! You know, you're hearing that background noise. And so I have to call it out or else it'll sound weird. Um, there's the fire. Um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and mute myself, Deanna, because I think that um, I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing as well. Okay, this is a great time to do that, but we love the echo. We love the the background. Um, So the Latino Arts Foundation, I am a founder. I'm a Chicana. I'm Mexican-American and love my culture very much and embrace it. Um, I was on Queer Eye season four, which also was a catalyst to be able to bring this to the forefront as well. Um, Deanna, you were on Queer Eye? Oh, my God. Yes, I was. Thank you, Edgar. <laughs> I ha- I have usually don't talk about it, which you know, Edgar, I do not talk about this a lot. Why don't you talk about this? I don't know. It's just a weird thing with me, but I have people in my community that always bring it up, which I love. Everybody because- else talks about it. <laughs> Except me. <laughs> Except you. And it sounds really weird for me to do this right now. And the only reason I'm doing it is so that way people can have a little bit of background because people do ask me all the time, wow, you know, you had this thing for 10 years and all of a sudden now you're a a not-for-profit. It didn't happen that easily, (laughs) you know, and even the struggle of deciding whether or not we were going to be on that show um, was a huge, huge commitment for my family. And it still is a huge commitment for my family. And um, so I I just kind of want to also share that piece of it because it's such an important part of my own story um, and be able to have that the space, the physical space um, that represents who we are and what we do. And be able to offer that space to the community, which is what um, Edgar, you helped me a lot in figuring this out. You know, um, we don't offer we um, offer our space for no cost to our artists and to our community that needs it. And um, I've, I'm hoping that that can continue after COVID. But um, uh, it's just been a great way to give back because Queer Eye did um, provide us with this amazing gift, and so it's just been a continuous effort to give back to the community in regards to that. You know, I think it's so interesting. Um, I, we, we're talking about foundries, and you mentioned something about um, the rarity of, of, you know, of what it is. I also noticed that I repeat words. I was actually listening to myself speak the other day, by the way, and I like I repeat words when I'm thinking stuff about stuff, and so I'm like I'm either of of or 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 e, e, you know like so just FYI, I'm going to be practicing on our listeners, and not say um or repeat words as I'm thinking through my thoughts. So. If, if you don't know about if you don't know that about me yet, like you will find that out because I I have heard it. See, I did it again. I did it again. I did it again. But can we can we just say that the realness here, though, for real, like who else talks about like the faults they have? <laughs> it's like me and you. We are so good at doing that. We're so good at talking bad about ourselves. <laughs> I know. But We're at the so- end of the day, we always end up telling each other, stop doing that. Right. Like, you need to think this way. We, so we always get it out. And then at the end of the day, we, we heal. We heal. I'm not from it. You are better than you are better. And I don't think so. I think, I think that, I think 
I think you always uh, show up in, in a very positive and joyful spirit. And so I don't know if you're faking it. I mean, that could be part of it too. So I don't know. <laughs> um, but I, I just smile all the time. So that's just something that is not fake. That just happens. I don't know what, why that happens. But I mean, it's just your positive spirit. Uh, see, I said it again. No, I think that it is incredibly important to acknowledge that it may feel rare for us as founders that, you know, we don't have these things modeled for us. And I also like want to think about this from an expansive mindset, which is that we actually have a community of people that actually have done this and have gone through this and are actually very supportive of who we are and what we do. The reality is it doesn't feel like a lot of people because it really isn't a lot of people when we think about it. And so we feel isolated in this work, but I will say part of the work that we're doing and part of the reason why um, we want to kind of continue doing Fuego and, and, and reaching out to folks is, so if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling like you're not seeing yourself reflected, that we're here for you and that we want to bring you alongside this journey. And we want to also walk alongside your journey to make it more simple, to make it easier for you. Because the reality is like, it gets tough. It gets really tough out there. And so we hope that by sharing our stories, by being vulnerable, by telling you all about all of our faults and what we did wrong and how we messed up. I'm also trying not to use curse words, by the way. I think I'm doing a pretty good job of that. So I will- You're doing an amazing job. <laughs> I will I will say all of that. So we are here for you, um, listeners. Ah, you heard the um again. I got to work on this better. This is actually great practice for me. So thank you for listening to me uh, do this. Thanks. I'm telling you, we, we were talking about how we can be more real and we're just always real. It just always just happens naturally. Every time I'm an introvert uh, by, and I know you are too, Edgar, like um, I'm a fake extrovert for sure. Learning. Um, so when we get, when I get in these spaces, I start out like, I can't do intros well at all. So excuse my intros. I'm always like, blah, 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 blah. let's just get to it because I just hate introing it, it, You know, I don't know. I don't think I do well at it. I don't think I, I intro our guests well, but then once we get in the conversation, like we are right now, it's amazing. It works out great. Would you agree, Edgar? Absolutely. Uh, I think you have a gift. I think you have a gift of making people feel comfortable. And I think by you sharing your story, it really opens other people up to share their stories. You're noticing me slow down and you're noticing me not use filler words. But if you knew me really well, you would understand that my brain is like 10 speeds ahead of me or 10 miles ahead of me. And so it's helping me slow down in this moment and practice slowing down in this moment. You do a phenomenal job of making people feel comfortable, though. I appreciate that. And, you know, I think it's the same gift you have as well. So I'll, I'll have to reiterate that to you because um, when I'm in this. And so to even go back, because we did have a podcast called, called Chingon. And um, I decided to cancel it after four episodes. I know. I fired Edgar. And <laughs> no, just kidding. You can't fire Edgar. It, it never can happen. Um, so what happened was I wanted to, um, I, I, you know, after we did a couple episodes and Chingona started like coming to my brain and there were a lot of um, Latina listeners and Chicana listeners that wanted to be on the platform. And I really wanted to raise their voices because that is one thing that I haven't heard and forgive me if there's other people out there doing this right now. But um, there really isn't a lot of podcasts in Kansas City that are allowing other Latina or Chicana 
uh, voices to be on the air with them as co-hosts. And so I think that was such a huge opportunity. And I think now we have six that are permanent and people still filling in on when they can. Um, so the reason that we stopped Chigon is because it did become Chigona. But I will be completely honest with you, listeners. Um, I missed having that conversation with you, Edgar. And I told you this because I think um, as an introvert, as somebody who doesn't, uh, who wants to talk and, and tell my story, I'm not really good at it. And I'm not good at doing podcast alone. Like I've tried that a couple times and it just doesn't work very well. I think you did that on Platica um, the other I day. Did. How did that, how did that work out? I was terrified because I, I love talking to people. Yes. I am. I, I have practiced interviewing folks and I have, I love having conversations. Mm-hmm. And so for me to fill 30 minutes with my own thoughts and my own opinions and to make it coherent and to make sure that I wasn't rambling was incredibly difficult. It is also weird to put your voice out there and not know if anyone's listening. Yes. Like with this, we have the conversation. I know you're listening. I don't care if anybody else is listening. I mean, I do now. So please continue to listen. <laughs> yes, please continue to listen. <laughs> But when you're doing a live stream and you can tell how many people are viewing or how, or how many people aren't viewing, it is it is a weird space to be in because it just feels like you're talking to yourself. Or you're wondering, are you doing the right thing? That's what goes in my brain. Does that go in your brain? Because um, I learned how to do um, StreamYard live broadcast because of you, Edgar. You kind of did this platform um, before a lot of us and I was watching you. And one of the main things I have is the fact that uh, watching that viewer count really hinders me a lot. And even when the chats don't come in or the comments don't come in, that hinders me a lot too. Does that do the same thing to you? Yeah. And I think that that is social media culture because I think that we expect people to like what we say or that we want people to interact with who we are, but we also don't create space that people are busy. Um, Ah, I did it again, y'all. You know <laughs> For our listeners, we're going to play this game for the next uh, six episodes. Every time I use a filler ward, I'm going to donate five cents five cents to a charity. So keep me honest. Keep I'm me glad honest. you said five cents because if you did a little bit more, I would be a little worried. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. I don't know if that was a low-key insult, but I... Not I a low-key insult at all because I'm in the same position. <laughs> I say, um too much. My first intro for my podcast is um, 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 um. And so, yes, I feel you. And that's the reason why I said it. Because if I were to do $5 every time I said it, holy, oh my gosh, I might as well not have a house. <laughs> so I, I will give a nickel for every, um, except for that one that I say from now on. You're also hearing me again. I keep saying this. I am slowing down so I can prevent myself from using filler words because it is so annoying for me to hear other people do it. And then I heard it in myself and I was really disappointed in myself. <laughs> I, you know, I appreciate you also talking about StreamYard and all these podcasts and the platforms. I always, you know, I always feel, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's human to want to interact with people and to want to engage with people. And it, it, it can feel like a deterrent when nobody shows up to your Streamyard or your 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 like livecast, and also, it is so important if you have something to say to say it, whether people are listening or not. Mm-hmm. 
Agree. Because you are honoring yourself in that moment. You're honoring the work. You're honoring what's important to you. And at some point, somebody might tune in. And at some point, somebody might actually listen. And they may interact. You may have inspired them. I think the one thing that I do love about live streams, particularly on Facebook and social media, just in general, is that they live there forever. And so you never know when somebody's going to hear the message and they may hear the message on their time. And when it's when it's convenient for them or when they're ready to hear that message. And so I like the opportunity to have that message out there and then see what happens in the future. And, and I've, I've seen that work um, multiple times. Nickel. I look at you already starting. <laughs> and I, I will agree with you 110% on that. Because yes, real time is very hard for a lot of people, including myself, which I'm do I do the same thing. And second of all, um, the viewers that watch our uh, live broadcast after the airing is usually on Instagram on IGTV. I have a lot more viewers there, which is, is so amazing because um, a lot of How them are many followers do you have on Instagram? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Uh, right now I'm at 14.4, but Edgar, you know, million, no, not million. I am not. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> not yet. Amazing. No, not, no. And, um, I went through this whole thing and, and here we go with a little bit of social media, um, hesitation and, um, anxiety. Um, I started, you know, before anything with 500 people and it'd always fluctuate from three to five, three two, three, five, you know, and then I kind of got up to the 14. And then um, there was a time when it actually would just continue to drop, I would lose like 500 followers within like four days. And you think to yourself, like, okay, like, how am I not connecting? What did I say? Did, was something wrong? But at the end of the day, um, I think it's just a good tip for all of us to know that just be yourself. And those followers are, 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 and I actually call them like almost like friends because the people that are on there are on there because they, they either one, you know, like this, they uh, connect to my story or two, they love the work that I'm doing, you know, or, or three, they just want to know about Kansas city. I've had that a lot as well. So it's kind of cool just to be able to have people on there that really do want to engage with what you're doing. I have a very different approach to followers or likes or that kind of interaction in general. Please tell I me. Would love, I, would love to, I would love to believe that every follower I have or every person that engages with me in social media has a positive intention behind that. I have also learned that not everybody that follows me or engages with me on social media has a positive intention behind that inner behind that interaction and so i have learned not to center the number of likes or the number of people that i'm friends with or the number of people that are engaging with me because the reality is whether it's one person whether it's nobody or whether it's fourteen thousand, i still have to be true to myself yes i agree you know and I think that we have to demonstrate that for not just for you and me, but for our community. Mm -hmm. We have to demonstrate that for our kids. Because before social media, and you and I both lived in a time that there was no such thing as Facebook or Instagram. We were barely getting over the loss of MySpace at that time. Yes. Or is, did you have a Zanga? I feel oh, like no, you had I, a Zanga. I did not. I had MySpace. You didn't have a Zanga? Mm -hmm. What? 
I wasn't that inclined in technology. I really wasn't. I was all about going, like hanging out in the streets. So oh. that's a totally well, different you had, story. You had friends. <laughs> I did not have friends. And so my life was either on MySpace or Zanga. And we were talking about, I was writing stuff like, dear Zanga, today somebody made fun of me. Really? And I feel terrible about it. Oh, yeah. Was so was it, I don't even know what Zanga is. I'll have to look that up after this. Oh, Zanga, if, for, if you're not familiar with Zanga, it was like Tumblr of writing journals. So you could, you could post, it was like the Facebook, it was like advanced Twitter because it wasn't 140 characters. You could just write pages. It was really like a blog. It was the beginning of a blog, but it was, it was for sad teenagers like myself at that time to be honest with their feelings and say crazy things like i wonder if the world will ever love me that sad face but you know that's an amazing outlet to have though um i'm just and that's my dog so background noise always um that's an amazing outlet to have during that time you know because i didn't Maybe. even know about that you know i could have a journal <laughs> i didn't have to put all my frustrations and anger and like sadness into the world and so i think about those times because i'm like who was i talking to you know <laughs> or and then i also was like i think about this i'm not going to give a nickel for every like because i think like is a fantastic word uh arms though i will give a nickel because i don't like those words <laughs> i think it's interesting that i you know i think about it from this perspective who was i writing for was i writing for myself was I writing to heal myself? Was I writing for closure? Or was I writing to get sympathy from people and for people to give me like a smiley face? Mm. You know, and so I, I, I still question like why I was actually even writing it because maybe I just wanted the attention versus anything else. You know, but I think we all go through that. I think that's a human thing. And especially in this new, in this social setting and in space, it really is. I mean, I think um, humanly, we do want that connection, and especially right now during this time of COVID. I think it's even more relevant. Like, I think you, even though you may not admit it, I think there's always just this piece of, you know, you do want that interaction with other people and especially people that you um, either look up to or love their voice. Cause I know that's the way I am on some social media is the people that speak out and talk like, and, and I relate to, I'm just like, it feels like a connection, even though there's never a time I'll meet JLo, you know, I can send her as many DMs as possible, but she'll never reply back. You don't know that. And I will say yeah. this, if we have any listeners who know JLo, feel free to connect her to us. There you go. Because we want to talk to her. Absolutely. You know, why wouldn't she want to talk to us? Like, you know, we're amazing. I, I agree with that statement. I don't understand why she possibly wouldn't want to talk to us, particularly <laughs> with all the exposure that we could provide her that she needs. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, for this first segment of Fuego with the amazing radio station that we um, are partnering with, um, I just want to thank you, Edgar, for taking on this journey you know, with us and uh, being a part of this um, again, uh, because um, I think it's one of those things. It's like, you know, once you don't have it, you're like, wow, this was such a, an amazing, um, phenomenal um, thing to be doing. And uh, I'm so glad that you're back on this platform. 
I am glad to be back. I am glad to be in community with you. And I hope that I don't get fired after four episodes. You will not. He didn't get fired, everybody. Okay, just so I let you know that. I, I, I think you fired me. I don't know. I got a do not return email. So, you know. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> You know, you have to, we have to rise the Latina voices. So you step back. So the, I did. Of the Latinas could come forward. And, and what, what great honor is that right, right there. Right. You saying, you know what? That's cool. You do this. Latina women absolutely need their voices to be heard. They really do. I know you have an amazing CEO, Susana, who does the Platicas of the Week on your um, stations and social media. So she is phenomenal. So yes, people like her that need to have that that uh, space to be heard. I just appreciate everything that you do, Deanna, and I'm glad to be a part of this journey. I am glad to meet you folks. For those of you listening today, get in contact with us. Let us know what you want us to talk about. That would be amazing. So um, uh, social media uh, message us, uh, Edgar and or Deanna, both. Um, definitely let us know. We're going to have hear. to start. We're going to have to start like Fuego KC or something like that. So people can connect go. with us. That's going to be our hashtag. Hashtag Fuego KC. There you go. <laughs> KC so is hashtag. on fire. Yes. Hashtag that. And then we'll be able to see your comments and uh, get back with us. So I appreciate you listeners so much for being here, um, taking the time with us. And I will see you next time. Well, Hear you next time. Hear you next. See? We actually want to hear you. This is is exactly why this podcast is here, because this is just realness, realness to its core. I am not a a real, like, I don't know anything about podcasting. I'm learning. And uh, this is is great. I know you get on one stream and you just think that's just, that you you talk a certain way. So uh, we're learning as we go, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And all of you are learning as you go as well. Absolutely. All right, then. We'll see you guys next time. Adios. And we're live. Hey, everybody. I'm Midwest Chicana on the Chicana podcast. And um, oh, my gosh, I have been waiting so long to have this interview. And I'm so excited for Kansas City to meet a friend of mine who we just barely met. But she has become so phenomenal in um, just uh, reaching out and um, being such a great um, contact in person. So welcome, everybody. Denise, Dr. Denise Sandoval. <laughs> Hi, Denise. Hello, hello. Or Cubole to keep up the Chicano vibe here. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm the one that doesn't know Spanish very well, and I'm not going to butcher it here on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, the good thing is Cubole is, is, you know, slang. So, yeah. Pachuco slang. So, what's up? That's yeah, there we up. go. <laughs> so, you're in California right now. Mm-hmm. I'm in Los Angeles, California. How's it out there right now, especially with all the COVID happening? Well, we're being hit pretty uh, strongly by COVID, especially um, Los Angeles County. And um, actually where I am right now, we're like one of the hotspots in East Los Angeles. So I think we're at close to three th- around 3,000 cases right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, about 60 deaths, that's the last time I looked. But yeah, so they're talking out here about um, going back into like, you know, stay at home orders because yeah. people 
are not wearing their masks and they're out and about at restaurants, even outside without masks and the beaches, they close the beaches, they still show up. So here we are. Yeah, it's like that way in Kansas City. It's like, wear your mask, people, please. Like, we don't want to be here in the home. Like, my kids and I have been in our house since March. And, you know, it's just been that normal. We don't do anything anymore. It's it's not fun, but we want to protect everybody, too. Yeah, and I just, like, I was telling um, people, my family, I was like, you know, this is not a struggle. Like, my grandmother lived through World War II. There's people mm-hmm. alive that still lived World War II where they had a sacrifice. There were rationings. Like, that That was hard, right? Like, not yeah. being able to go to a restaurant or a bar, do something, like, for a p- period of time. Like, it's doable, you know? Like, yeah. there's a previous generation that really yeah. sacrificed and yeah. really united, right, for the greater good. But yeah, we'll let's, yeah. fingers crossed, fingers crossed. You have to have hope. I've- Absolutely. So, uh, Denise, you have not been to Kansas City, right? I have not been to Kansas City. Okay. So we will invite you with warm hugs and love when you get here, when COVID's all over. Because you need to come visit us out here. I know we've talked a lot about, um, you know, what we do here. And I know you were very interested in what we do here as well, just by um, talking to me and then some of the people here as well. Well, yeah, and just, you know, being a Chicano Studies history professor, you know, I do know about the Midwest, you know, and uh, the communities that have been in the Midwest since the early 20th century. So um, I think it's oftentimes an overlooked area, you know, yeah. when we look at sort of Chicano history or Chicano settlement and, and culture, but it's a important especially even now in the 21st century, right? Like uh, yep. there's communities all across the U.S. that have Latino Mexican um, immigrants. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted you on here because I know um, you and I met through yeah. an email chain from your one of your amazing right. events um, way yeah. back in like 2018 after my Queer Eye show. Um, yeah. Event. Yeah. And you were so gracious to uh, respond and kind of say, hey, I seen your show. I, I It's amazing and want to learn more. And so this is kind of how this all happened. Yeah, it's one of those things that we were talking about. It's just crazy how the universe works, because when I watched that queer episode, I was like, this is a really great episode. And first of all, I had over the shock of seeing the word Chicano, like on Netflix and on a mainstream TV show, there was first that. And then it was you. And then looking at low riding, which obviously is my research interest, but also um, even dealing with the aesthetics or the cholo, chola aesthetics that I thought really was fascinating. Um, And then always every episode is just very emotional when you watch it, right? When you see people on their journeys. Um, So I thought, wow, that was great. But um, how we actually connected, I, I think it was at last summer, after last summer, because yeah. I was at presenting my work at the Getty, you know, which is a well-known museum out in Los Angeles, and this student was part of the that program. I didn't even know her. She wasn't my student. She just went to my lecture, and I guess she really liked what I said, and she had seen your episode, and so I just got a cold email from her, Yeah, and I was like, well, thank you if you want to introduce us, blah, blah, blah. Fine, because, you know, we were talking about that before. Sometimes you see these amazing things in the world or online and, and like, part of you wants to reach out, but, like, I never do, right? But yeah. it, it was this little angel that we couldn't remember who her name was. Yes. But thank you. Yeah, <laughs> because thank she, you. Did an e- she did an email introduction between us, and she didn't even know you. It was like a cold mm-hmm. intro, you know, like, I think you two should meet. That's, I think, what she said. Yes, she did. And then, and then I 
we talked on the phone. That was like probably like last September, October, yeah. somewhere around there when I was working on the Viva Vicla's exhibit for North Carolina, which was the first um, art exhibit to feature lowrider motorcycles. Um, and, and it was at uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So we had, we were had our conversation back then. So yeah, so it's just great. Like I always feel like it's another reminder of like when you're supposed to meet somebody, like the universe makes it, makes it happen. So. Well, and it's so funny how the universe works because my episode got aired just because of Rachel Mendez, who also is a Chicana and she's from Texas and she's a producer on Queer Eye. So it was just funny how this whole thing just chained out and it continues to chain out. So I'm just gracious. I'm so glad that you're here and let's get started because I want everyone yeah. to know all about you and the amazing stuff that you've told me and your work. So let's start with that. So where are you, where, like, where are your beginnings? Okay. And how did you end up, um, what you're doing now with Chicano Studies? So, like, my family history is sort of that classic, you know, East Los Angeles story. You know, my mother grew up in East Los Angeles. Um, my, my dad in Lincoln Heights, which is still Northeast L.A. Um, they were both born here. Um, so my grandparents on my mom's side, they came from Mexico City and during World War II, legally. Um, and that's how she was born here. So she grew up in East LA. And then my dad's side, the Sandoval line, actually goes back generations to Albuquerque. And my grandfather came out here also during World War II for work because he was an only child um, to work in the defense industry. And that's where he met my grandmother, who she came here during the Depression from Mexico. So, you know, my parents were born here. They grew up in Motown kids, you know, 60 kids, beach boy kids. Um, and then um, my dad's a Vietnam vet, you know, so uh, they got married young at like 20 and uh, they had me at like 22. My mom had me at 22 and I grew up just 20 minutes east of East LA in a city called La Puente. Um, Chicano, you know, working class Chicano community, survived 12 years of Catholic school, low riding was in my community, uh, even though I didn't know any low riders personally. Um, but I was really into school and, and studying and really college was like drilled into me from a young age that you're going to go to college because um, my parents didn't go to college, but they ended up going back to school. Like my dad, when I was in high school, got his college degree and my mom went back to school when I returned from Berkeley one summer because she saw I was taking Chicano studies class and she was like, this is my this is my neighborhood where I grew up, right? And it inspired her to go back to school and she majored in Chicano studies. Wow. And she, gra she graduated at, from Cal State Fullerton and she graduated in 2002 with her degree in Chicano studies. My sister graduated in 2002 from UC Riverside in English and my brother in 2002 got his PhD in history from UC Berkeley and he's, he's a Chicano historian as well. I got my PhD the next year, 2003, so I just missed out, but I think, <laughs> That's where, you know, my family story is also important, right? Because we were all always into education. Um, me and my brother, you know, were two academics in Chicano studies. Um, my brother's a professor at Pomona College, which is one of the Claremont colleges, which is about maybe a half an hour outside of downtown LA without traffic. Um, so when I landed on the campus of UC Berkeley, it was um, January of 1991, I transferred um, from the community college we were in, uh, I forget which war, war we were in at that time, but it was a very political climate, the 90s at UC Berkeley. There were like attacks on ethnic studies, you know, the war, apartheid, all of these things. And Berkeley just changed 
my life. You know, it was like, it was the first time, like, I remember walking across campus and they were having like a legalized marijuana, you know, and they had this hundred, like, it seemed like it was a hundred feet. I'm probably exaggerating. Let's say 50, <laughs> it was a big marijuana joint. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, where is this place? You know, because, you know, I came out of 12 years at Catholic school, you know, kind of conservative. Um, but Berkeley just woke me up, you know, in the 90s, you know, and that's, you know, the riots happened in 92 and people were walking out at Berkeley in that time. So I think the 90s and the political climate um, and Berkeley itself, you see Berkeley shaped me because that's where I took my first Chicano studies class. Um, first time I had the word Chicano, um, I had always, uh, I think we had talked about this before. I think for me in education, I was always drawn to like black writers or Native American writers, because that was the only other stories I got in my education of K through 12. And I think Berkeley gave me the language to understand why I was connecting to James Baldwin, right? Mm -hmm. Or why I was uh, connecting to the writings of Chief Joseph and the Nez Perces during the, you know, genocide year. So I think for me, I think Berkeley gave me my Chicana consciousness, you know, and I was mm -hmm. able to take classes about my culture, my history. Um, but I think it was when I look back, you know, even through K2 Throb, I always felt like drawn to the other stories, meaning mm -hmm. the non-white <laughs> histories <Yes>. or <laughs> or books, right, or other um, learning that I was doing in school. And so um, once I took my first Chicano Studies class at Berkeley, I was hooked, you know, and, um, and I think at Berkeley, they also gave me uh, they strengthened that, like, we need more people getting PhDs, right? Mm -hmm. We have to write more um, books on our culture, on our history, who's going to write them, like you're the next generation. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Berkeley was a campus that was, um, you know, an important site for political struggle in the 60s and 70s. Students took over the administration buildings to create ethnic studies, to create Chicano studies. Um, so like, I think even that political history of the generation before um, inspired me to think about like, what is my generation, generation X, right, gonna do? What's our contribution? Um, and so actually at UC Berkeley is where I found old issues of Lowrider Magazine because they had a Chicano Studies library it doesn't exist anymore because now they built a big ethnic studies library mm -hmm. and uh, I found old issues of Lowrider magazine from the 70s and I was flipping them going like this is amazing because you know there were there were mostly stories and yeah. mostly pictures of our community you know not a lot of TNA um, and I think I even, I even did a women's studies project using you know uh, on video of Lowrider magazine so it's just funny that like all these years you know, in 1999, um, or 98, 99 is when I, um, you know, did my first curating gig, right? So this was 93, like 92, 93 at Berkeley. So it looks I think like for me, yeah, it was pretty quick. Yeah, and it looks like Denise, does someone from uh, Louise is actually saying Desert Storm in 92, riots, Rodney King in 94, um, protest against Proposition 187. And then that's what drove. Well, the um, riots were 92. Yeah, riots were 92. And then um, when I was at, I so from Berkeley, I went to uh, Cal State Northridge, where I'm actually teaching. And I was a master's student. And so we were very active against 187. Yeah, and that was in 94. But it was like really, you know, and also like on our campus, there was a lot of cultural movement happening at, at CSUN. So after Berkeley, I went, I ended up at 
uh, CSUN or Cal State Northridge. You know, we had like Aslan Underground, which was like a Chicano rap group. Um, in fact, even Rage Against the Machine did one of their first what? college shows in 92, 93 at, at Cal State oh. North or somewhere around there. Like I wasn't a student then. So yeah, so we were very active in protesting um, and, you know, uh, Proposition 187, you know, and then years after that, when I was working on my PhD, we had like the end of affirmative action, um, just a uh, attack on gay marriage, but which of course didn't pass at that time. So the 90s were a really formulative, formulate, formulative time period for me. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be a professor. Um, and so for that, you'd have to go get your PhD. So I ended up after I got my master's in Chicano studies at Cal State Northridge, my whole goal was like, I'm going to get my PhD, I'm going to come back to Cal State Northridge and teach. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but I ended up getting my PhD in cultural studies at Claremont Graduate University. I started in uh, the fall of 95. So I'm old. <laughs> no, you are not old at all. I mean, um, just hearing that that part of it, which is like a, a snippet of like, I'm sure the amazing, amazingness within all of that, um, because I am just so envious of the um, culture um, that you have embraced and that you're sharing with your students. Um, I, I'm just like in awe of it because um, I think you just mentioned, like you saw, you realized that you were um, this Chicana, you know, because of what this school offered and to be able to bring that out loud. Because I think for a lot of us, we don't have that in school, right? I'm the same way. Mm -hmm. I identified with the black culture, um, you know, or other stories um, that were non-white because we didn't talk about the Chicanos and especially not here in the Midwest. Um, I feel like it's becoming more um, open now, but um, I totally understand when you say that. Yeah, and I think for my own family, where it sort of missed my parents is like they were already married, right? Mm -hmm. So when the Chicano movement, all of this was happening, my dad was in Vietnam, like um, they weren't in the high schools, this wasn't happening. So there was like a, a little bit of distance um, and they were dealing with other issues, you know, like my dad potentially dying in, in Vietnam. Um, so, uh, you know, when you grew up, especially in the 70s and in the 80s in particular, it was like the decade of the Hispanic, right? And they were calling you Hispanic, Hispanic, Hispanic. And you just called yourself Hispanic, right? Because that's what they told, <laughs> told you, that's what you were, right? And right. I think that, um, Berkeley was the first time that I realized, like, I remember as I started taking more classes, I went from, I know I'm not Hispanic, you know, because they told me how the history of the world, world was created, you know, it was like sort of this government agency that decided what would be a good word, you know, because they were using like Spanish surname before. Um, and so they created that Hispanic, right? Um, it was from Hispano, obviously, but it sort of highlights a lot of our white whiteness of our identity and sort of hide sort of the indigenous and even the black roots that exist and there's even asian roots that exist in in um latin america so i knew i wasn't hispanic so then i went like oh okay i'm mexican-american and then by the time i graduated berkeley i was like i'm chicana right <laughs> uh, but it was just interesting to see sort of that identity um shaping and i see it in my students too you know um i teach mostly I teach like a good mix of like first time college freshmen to like upper division. And it's the same thing, you know, like they're learning this new language, they're learning, 
you know, how their identity or how they view themselves, you know, how the world views them. And um, that's why I love teaching because it's like really helping students, giving them a language, um, yes. give, filling in gaps to their knowledge, but allowing them, right, to have that power to be critical thinkers and potentially, like I always tell my students, like you have to be agents for social change, right? Yeah. You know, we, the social justice is about action. And I say, you know, like a lot of times they're telling us that knowledge is power. And I don't completely agree with that. You know, uh, what you do with that knowledge is where power, it, 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 the power imbalance happens, right? So it's Absolutely. that first step, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that for me, sort of like growing up, in the time period that I did, um, the decade of the Hispanic, it definitely like influenced, you know, how we viewed ourselves. But I think being exposed to Chicano studies and then also, I, you know, I was actually an ethnic studies major at Berkeley, Chicano studies minor, which was important because looking at the cross cross comparative analysis, right, to looking at, you know, what Chicano share with African Americans, with Native Americans. Um, Asian Americans, you know, a lot of the Chicano history for especially in California is very much linked to the Asian uh, migration from China, from Japan, from um, the Philippines, right? Because a lot of these um, workers were working in the same jobs that Chicanos and Mexicans were working right in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So I think that cross comparative analysis is is really good. And a book I could recommend to people that he was my professor at Berkeley. I use his book in my class, Ronald Takaki. It's called A Different Mirror, A Multicultural History of the United States. Um, and that book is amazing because what he argues is that uh, people of color, we share more, right? Marginalized groups, we share more than we're, than we're dissimilar. And we've all contributed to building this country um, through the work that we've done. Um, we've, we've, like for instance, we worked side by side on the railroads or we worked in the factories, uh, we worked in the fields. Um, so I think like, this is why I love teaching US history from the perspective of people of color or as like Howard Zinn says, um, the losers of history, right? Because he argues, you know, how history books are written by the winners, right? And the winners sort of normalize their yes. power. So I think like having that training from Berkeley and professors like that inspired me even today in the work that I do in the classroom. And, you know, I teach classes on Chicano culture at Cal State Northridge, but also um, U.S. history classes as well. And gender and, okay. and women's studies and feminism. <laughs> you everything, and this is like we could have like a million podcasts with you because this is so amazing. Okay, what was his name? Rodney. Oh, Ronald Takaki. Ronald oh, Takaki. Okay. A different hair. Yeah. And do you have to spell his last name. I was going to put it on the comments. Oh, Takaki. It's a T A K A K I. Takaki. Yeah, he's, um, he he was Japanese American. He he awesome. he's dead, but. Yeah. Uh, he was lucky he was my professor and um, at Berkeley. And then, um, yeah, I still use his books in my class today. So, Denise, I'm going to ask you a question that I get asked a lot. And yeah. um, especially being here in the Midwest, you know, there's a lot of people learning and want to be, you know, more, um, you know, understanding of the Chicano culture. Mm -hmm. What does Chicano mean? Like, what does it mean? Yeah, like, what that's, is, like, a, that's like a whole, a whole lecture. I mean, obviously, you know, um, I know it's what does it mean? I mean, I think like when we sort of think about Chicano 
as a political cultural label, mm -hmm. right? You have to go to the Chicano movement, right? So the Chicano movement sort of used a term that had been used in the United States, um, but as a derogatory term of kind of meaning like a lower class Mexican, right? Mm -hmm. um, and some of even, I've even heard some Chicano um, professors and scholars say, well, you know, Chicano sort of descends from the word Mexicano, right? Because the Mexicas were the Aztecs. What they called themselves were Mexicas. The Spaniards called them the Aztecs. So that me Mexica, Mexicano, right? Chicano, right? Is sort of like a short version of that. So there's also that indigenous um, connection as well. But I think the, the Chicano movement, right, really sort of began this period of we're going to name ourselves, right? This is what we choose to sort of name us and to name us. But more importantly, it's it's that we're, Mex we're Mexican heritage and we're American, right? So embracing sort of both those cultures. And I think it's the same way of thinking about how the Black Power Movement embraced the term Black, right? Mm -hmm. It was Black power, like we had Chicano power, right? Mm -hmm. Black is beautiful, brown is beautiful. And I think this is really important because the way we challenged white supremacy was by what we call ourselves and reclaiming a culture that white supremacy had said is less than. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, no, our culture has just as value as white European culture. And we have to reclaim that because that is tied to self-esteem, right? Having pride, right? Um, and we demand right full citizenship. So I think like culture became the tool to build sort of this political movement it was essential, right? Mm -hmm. And you sort of think about like when I always teach my this period of my students, I love it because it's still at play today. We could have a discussion present, but back then, right? You sort of think about in the '60s, you had the hippies, right? You had you know, black power, Chicano power, Native American power, the women movement, and all just those examples I give you, there's more queer liberation, yeah. Stonewall, all of those movements were dealing with culture and naming, right? And, to, and saying our culture is beautiful, our culture, we demand for rights. So culture was that point of, of a resource. Um, and also critiquing, right, the way that sort of white culture sort of diminishes um, our experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, you know, when you sort of think about like Motown music in that time period or Aretha Franklin, Respect, James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud, right? How the music that our community was creating was marrying, mm -hmm. right, this time period. We've had it. We're, we're our culture has value. And I think that's why art is so important, why low writing is so important, why music, all cultural forms and expressions are important because it's a way that we create. Not only do we exist, but our cultures and our identities have value, right? Yes. Uh, and we shouldn't have to be ashamed yes. of these cultures. Um, and I think that's the way we sort of challenge sort of like white supremacy, you know, it's it's like it's, you know, it gives us power, you know, and that's like when I always tell students, you know, I'm also hip hop generation, I'm Gen X, also yes. hip hop generation. <laughs> like when you sort of think about, um, you know, that was created by black and Latino youth, right, in sort of like New York, and it has roots in sort of the Latin American diaspora, the African diaspora, but it was the same way, like if well, how are we going to create music? We're going to use records. We're going to use our voice. We're going to use our bodies and dance. We're going to use, we don't have access to museums. We're going to use graffiti in our communities, yeah. right? But it was a way of 
using space, right? Using our communities um, and trying to change and fight sort of the the white sort of white supremacist narrative, right? Um, yeah, that has always tempted to er- attempted to erase us, you know. So I think it's amazing that even something like hip hop, just like low writing, has gone global. Right, so that how other cultures today are contributing to the lowrider movement or even hip hop, right? Um, mm-hmm. So something that started here and had specific connections to our histories and our communities, even people outside of the, the US still are able to apply, right? Sort of that, the feeling, the, the philosophy, the aesthetics to their own, right? Countries or their own neighborhoods um, in you know, international spaces. And okay, we're going to talk about the lowriders here in just one second. But Luis did bring up a good question that I was going to ask you as well. And he asked, um, what was your experience with the Brown Berets on the campuses you attended? Because here in Kansas City, that that has been brought up, um, especially with the black movement um, happening now about the Brown Uh, Berets. My campus, uh, my educational experience, it was mostly Mecha. Mm. Yeah, this is mostly Mecha. So they're uh, Mecha. Yeah. It's just, I don't know what else to say. It was Mecha. Yeah. So what does that mean, Mecha? Just in case anybody else doesn't know. It's uh, the Movimiento Estudio Estudiantil Chicano de Aslan. So that was the student group that was responsible uh, for creating Chicano studies out here in California around 68, 69. There was the, you know, the Plan de Santa Barbara. You could look it up. That sort of created a template of how they would create Chicano studies departments um, from like K through 12 through higher ed. And so Mecha was sort of the student sort of activist group, right? Mecha, M-E-C-H-A, no T, Mecha. Um, And uh, so that was really important because like even in my department, like Mecha, there's there's like regional, you know, every campus has a Mecha and they have their their conference and they had sort of a controversy this last year because they voted to sort of like change their name. Mm. Um, Is there because a reason? they said it was yeah, they were saying that it was anti-black and not exclusive to indigenous people. But I just felt like if you go back to the history, there was always connections to like African-Americans and indigenous culture. But I think it's just like how the newer generation, um, and I think this is maybe we have to do a better job of having intergenerational dialogue, but um, of going back and, and looking at historical moments. Um, but like on our campus, you know, Mecha is sort of like the activist group you know, um, on our campus. And we have a lot of actually activist student groups on our campus at Cal State Northridge. We're a pretty strong um, student activist campus. Um, But I think like it was important for us to always include students in that they they have also an interest in the Chicano Studies Department. And they also have, uh, they always know what we're, you know, us professors, what we're doing and just, keeping them part of the the dialogue. And I love what you said about the fact of intergenerational conversations, because I feel like that is so important because if you don't understand where it's coming from or the roots of it, and those people that actually um, gave us this pathway to even be in this space right now, um, I feel like we've lost and we're losing just this huge piece of, of who we are. And that's one thing that we're trying to do here in Kansas City, especially with podcasts like this, is to ensure that we're even talking about our Kansas City Chicano roots, because a lot of us don't even know about you know how that is, you know, who's what started it how did it even begin anything like that um so i just feel like that's so important 
No, I mean, the history is important and you have to go back and you have to learn it. And I think that's the reality that sometimes people will say, oh, you know, they, they see things in one way. Or I think now because we're in this sort of Instagram culture, so people yeah. do a meme or people yeah. do an Instagram and they take that as the fact. Um, when there's another side of like doing research, if anything, it's easier to do research now, right, through Google. <laughs> like, you know, I'm of that generation when I started researching low writing, I actually had to go into the library and use the computer at the library. Because if you remember, like, even yeah. in the 90s, if you dialed into a library, you had to put in all these codes, yeah. you know, like, DOS this, DOS. It was, like, so complicated, right? It was just easier to go to the library. Um, yes. You know, in our libraries, we had those little cards. We had no, I don't even know what those are. I oh, my like, God. I can't even imagine. It took forever just to even get the card. Yeah, so I feel like we're even in a time period where you can do the research, right? Yeah. But people, maybe they're just some, not everybody, but maybe some people, they think, oh, it's take too much time or it's lazy. But I 